The sermon that I've prepared today is called, Who Are You? And uh, I find one of the things about biblical genealogies is they seem very boring. I know Matthew 1, 1 to 17 was the part that I always skipped. When I started the New Testament, it started verse 18. The first 17 verses, they just weren't there. <laughs> you read it once, you got to figure it out. You don't have to go back. Um, but I've said in the Bible studies that I've led before that Scripture reveals the nature of God. And so if it reveals the nature of God, then it must be revealed in the genealogy as well. Um, who was Matthew? Before we get into the genealogy, who was this guy that wrote down this, this genealogy? I was listening to the Bible. If I listen to all of Matthew, maybe I'll get a better idea of where he's going and why did he put this here. And I found out some interesting things. Some of them I knew, some of them I didn't. I found out that he was from Capernaum, which was Jesus' hometown. And Matthew talks about that in chapter 9, verses 1 to 9. It talks about Jesus coming to his hometown and sharing and then getting, meeting Matthew and calling him. We all know that he was a tax collector. We were all taught that in, uh, in Sunday school. Uh, one of the things that I read was that the Romans would hire the local guys to take the taxes because there was a less chance that, that it would get stolen because they knew the families. An interesting thing about Matthew's gospel is that he is very forceful when he's dealing with the Pharisees, when he's uh, recounting what Jesus would talk about and how he would deal with the Pharisees. It's just very, a lot harsher than the other um, the gospels. One of the things he concentrates on is, his, is the relationship of Jesus to the Jewish faith. I think we can say that Matthew had an audience that was the Jewish people. Those were the people that he really wanted to touch. Those were the people that he really wanted to listen to what he had to say. And he wants the Jews to see that Jesus is, in fact, the promised Messiah, than he was the son of David. And so that's why he starts with the genealogy, because this is something that's very important and very close to the Jews. So why are genealogies important? There's a historical value through validation of stories and events. It preserves our culture, our tradition, and our legacy. I know when I was younger... Uh, my grandparents on my mother's side would talk about their time in Russia. They would talk about where they had lived and how they had lived and why they had left. And I remember watching a movie once called And When They Shall Ask. And it talked about in Russia there was an intolerance for the Mennonites, an intolerance for what we believed. And they would, they would steal our land and they would do many other brutal things. I remember my great, my great uncle talking about some of the things that he remembers as a little boy growing up in Russia and the torture that he watched in his own family. There's a loss of tradition as generations pass. We lose our language. I know I, I spent some time learning German when I was in school. I don't know enough of it now to do more than get myself in trouble. <laughs> I know that my parents speak enough German so that my brother and I don't really know what they're saying, but we get a general idea. And then... They were my grandparents, and I remember them speaking German quite a bit more fluently. But that language has pretty much disappeared, which is unfortunate. There's also a loss of our faith as traditions pass. I think there's an importance of faith when we go through a struggling time. But when we're in a time where there is no struggle, the faith wanes. And you see that in the generations that follow, that it's not as important. And it seems like people don't chase after what was so important. The other thing about genealogies is it has legal claims to property, inheritance, and paternity. And this is really what Matthew was here to talk about. That the Jews, everything was hinged on this genealogy. 
because of the claims that it made. It addresses false accusations. There had been, in the past, false messiahs that had made claims to the king, kingship of David. When you look at some of the stories of, of these uprisings that happened before the time of Christ, where these guys would come and try to break away from the Romans, and some of their claims, maybe not to the messiahship itself, but to some sort of leadership over the people. It provides a historical claim. If you've got a genealogy, you can look at that, and you can say, we have a place in history. It's really interesting, over the last two weeks, Denise and I have been kind of watching this show, the Who Do You Think You Are? <laughs> All about genealogies, and it looks at people of fame, where did they come from, and who are their ancestors. There was one woman that they looked at who she was and where she came from, and they traced her back, I think it was seven or eight generations in the States, and then into England, to the time of Oliver Cromwell and the uprising. And then they traced her back even further that she had royal lineage in England. And then they traced it back even further to Charlemagne, where she was a descendant of Charlemagne. Which to me is amazing, because when you look at genealogies, they don't seem to really go past the 1700s. That there's some, something that they just didn't keep track of. Before I start looking at this genealogy, I have a question. Do you know what the first recorded biblical genealogy was? So we're just going to jump in and I'm going to introduce you to some guys here. There are three basic parts of the genealogy, and they're in groups of 14. And the first 14 start at Abraham, and they go to David. There are three claims in verse 1. There's a claim that Jesus is the Messiah, that he is the son of David, and he is the son of Abraham. Each one of these claims builds on the other to support the one that comes after it. This was done specifically for the Jews because they would have followed that genealogy to show why, you know, why different families were from different places. You know, when we talk about the birth of Christ, they were called back to Bethlehem because that was you know, from David, from his town. It also talks about the covenant with Abraham, and it's really interesting when we look at the three different parts that each one represents a different kind of covenant. And so this first group of 14 guys talk about the covenant with Abraham. And it talks about making Abraham a great nation. And it talks about blessing him, who, blessing those people that blessed him and cursing those people who cursed him. And it also says that all people on earth will be blessed through Abraham. And there's just a little bit of a hint right there at you know, what's going to happen to Abraham's family and why is this guy so important. You know, he wasn't just the father of nation or nations. He was also in the genealogy that led to Christ, which is really the most important thing. But what is wrong here? When you look at this genealogy, when you look at these 14 people, what is wrong with this genealogy? None of the first fathers in this genealogy, the first five guys, were the firstborn. The first five people mentioned in this genealogy were the second or the third, or later on down the line. Not one of these guys was a firstborn, which seems strange to me because that's where the birth rate would have followed, would be down the, the firstborn. It mentions Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Judah, and Perez. But it doesn't talk about Ishmael, it doesn't mention Esau, and it doesn't talk about Reuben. These would have been the firstborn. And there's a reason for that. It's to show the will of God through his providence. Because none of them can boast of preeminence or titles. And none of them can say, I was the firstborn and I carried the birthright and this is my family and I've got a claim to something. It exalts those who are in lower position. I know it talks about 
you know, some of them and some of the, the problems that they had. I know that um, Isaac kind of seems like this scrawny little hairless dude compared to his brother Esau, who was described as being ruddy and, you know, this big macho guy. So he wasn't really this standout kind of person that you would think that you would want your family to be following after. It puts honor on those people that we would not honor. Typically, women were not included in Jewish genealogies. And Matthew mentions five. Not only does he do that, he mentions some people that, they're not the people you talk about at your family gatherings in a loud voice. (laughs) They're the people you talk about quietly on the side. So we've got Tamar, and Tamar was the incestuous mother of twins through Judah. So Tamar had married the son of Judah, and he died. And she didn't get any sons through this guy. So she, just, she went and hid on the gate of the city, pretended to be a prostitute, and then had children through her father-in-law. This isn't really an honorable thing that she did. And yet she's mentioned in this genealogy. It mentions Rahab. She was a prostitute from Jericho. She wasn't even an Israelite. She wasn't from the family. She was a foreigner. And here she finds herself in the genealogy of Jesus. It mentions Ruth. And Ruth was a Moabite who was forbidden from entering the assembly of God because of Lot's incest with his daughters. It's not a theme, it just so happens. That <laughs> but when Lot and, and Abraham split, then Lot's family moved off to the side, and there wasn't any kind of... Like he had two daughters, but he didn't have any sons. And so they slept with their father, and out of them arose a couple of nations, and one of the nations was the Moabites. And because Ruth was a Moabite, there was this... Jewish law, that she wasn't allowed to be part of them. She wasn't allowed to come into the camp. She wasn't allowed to, to celebrate with them or to, to go to the temple to, with them or to, you know, to worship. And here she finds herself in the genealogy as well. And it mentions two guys. They're brothers. There's Perez and Zara. They were the twin sons of Judah through Tamar. Now, I read about these two guys, and Zara stretched his hand out of the womb and the nurse tied a string around his hand. And then he drew it back in. And then Perez was born and took that birthright away from him. So Perez technically was the second son, but he took the birthright away from his older brother. This is used as an allegory to describe um, the Jewish and Gentile churches. And one of the things that I read, it says here that the Jewish church reached out for the birthright, but withdrew its hand. And the Gentile church broke out and took the birthright away. I just found that really interesting that they took that idea of these two brothers, these twins, and how one had it. He had his hand there, and he was marked, and he drew it back, and, it was, and the birthright was given away to, to his brother, to his younger brother. So the second group in this generation is from David to Jeconiah. And they often call that the deportation of the Jews. So there is a claim to the throne right here in these verses, in this group of the genealogy. Even though 14 kings are mentioned, only David is addressed as a king, which I find really interesting because we know that all these guys were kings, but only David is referred to as a king. He's King David. And I think that's important because Jesus is called the son of David. He was given a a kingly role. He had this, he was this Messiah, he was a savior. Just like Abraham, God made a covenant with David. David was to have a child who had not been born yet who would succeed him and establish his kingdom. His son would build a temple instead of David. The throne of his kingdom would be established forever. 
The throne would not be taken away from him, even though his son's sin would justify chastisement. And David's house, throne, and kingdom would be established forever. And again, this is part of the point of Matthew's genealogy. It shows direct descendants from the royal line. It shows that God fulfilled his promise, and it, pr- it proves the claim of Jesus as a true king. And we read about that in Matthew 27. So Matthew 27, verse 11 says, Jesus stood before the governor, when the governor questioned him, saying, Are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus said to him, It is as you say. So Jesus claimed the kingship when he was asked. Christ is the legal heir to David. The interesting thing is that property rights were linked by family heritage. Land was the inheritance of the family and could be traced back to when the Jews had settled in Israel. And I think we remember from the Old Testament, we, we read the, the genealogy or the family of Abraham and how when they came into Egypt, they were listed and there's all the brothers and all the kids and everything like that. It was through these guys that there was an inheritance to the land given. And I know in my Bible, I've got a, a map in the back and it has the names of all the brothers in different colors and stuff. That's really important. That's a claim to their land. Individuals who could not trace their genealogy had no inheritance and were treated as foreigners. And that becomes really important very quickly after the crucifixion of Jesus. Another interesting thing is the importance of Bathsheba. Here we have the fourth woman named in the genealogy. And it marks a couple of things. There's a divergence in the genealogy of Jesus. And Matthew continues on through Solomon. But if we go to Luke and we look in Luke, he talks about the genealogy of Jesus through Mary. And they meet right here after David. So David had two sons. He had Solomon and he had Nathan. And Nathan became the father to the line of Mary, and Solomon became the father to the line of Joseph. Now, there's a few things that we look at in this, in this piece of scripture that kind of cause some bickering in the church. <laughs> and one of them is this idea of generational sin. Right here in this piece of scripture, we find out about a curse on the line of Jesus. It's called the curse of Jehoiakim. The very last king in the line of David, the lineage through Joseph, had a curse on him. So they went to the king in the court, but they had deposited the scroll in the chamber of Elishama the scribe, and they reported all the words to the king. Then the king sent Jehudi to get the scroll, and he took it out of the chamber of Elishama the scribe. And Jehudi read it to the king, as well as to all the officials who stood beside the king. Now the king was sitting in the winter house in the ninth month with a fire burning in the brazier before him. When Jehudi had read three or four columns, the king cut it with the scribe's knife and threw it into the fire that was in the brazier until the scroll was consumed in the fire that was in the brazier. Yet the king and all his servants who heard all these words were not afraid, nor did they rend their garments. Even though Elnathan and Deliah and Gamariah pleaded with the king not to burn the scroll. He would not listen to them. And the king commanded Jeremiel, the king's son, Shariah, the son of Azrael, and Shalomiah, the son of Abdeel, to seize Baruch, the scribe, and Jeremiah, the prophet. But the Lord hid them. Then the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah and to the, after the king had burned the scroll and the words with Baruch had written at the dictation of Jeremiah, saying, Take again another scroll and write on it, all the former words were written on the first scroll, which Jehoiakim, the king of Judah, burned. 
And concerning Jehoiakim, king of Judah, you shall say, This says the Lord, you have burned this scroll, saying, Why have you written on it that the king of Babylon will certainly come and destroy this land, and will make man and beast to cease from it? Therefore, says the Lord, concerning Jehoiakim, king of Judah, he shall have no one to sit on the throne of David, and his dead body shall be cast out of the heat of the day and the frost of the night. And I will also punish him and his descendants and his servants for their inquiry, and I will bring on them and the inhabitants of Jerusalem and the men of Judah all the calamity that I have declared to them, but they did not listen. And so this king was approached by Jeremiah and he put him out. He burned the scroll, he burned the words of God and God got really, really mad at him and he said, that's it. That's the end of your line. The kings of David will no longer be able to claim that throne. It voids the claim of kingship by Christ through the line of Joseph while retaining legal inheritance. The thing is that Mary's lineage through Nathan is no longer, is, is not affected by the curse. And that's recorded in the genealogy in Luke for, uh, chapter 3. Is there something wrong in this genealogy? When you read through these, these 14 guys, is there something wrong in this genealogy? It records 14 kings, but when you go to the Old Testament, there's actually 18 that happened in this period of time. So there are four that are skipped. Of those that are recorded, 11 of them were considered evil. So there's a pretty bad thing going on in this family. This was common. When they did genealogies, a lot of times they would use little things to help them remember. And this is another little sort of gray area, this whole numerology idea. But they would use this to help remember the genealogies. So here we've got three groups of 14. And, and when you look at that 14 and you figure out how the Jews use numbering systems, every time you have a number, it represents something. And the number 14 represents David. And so by doing this, Matthew was pointing back to David again and again and again by using the, the groups of 14. And so it doesn't take away from the genealogy that these guys aren't mentioned, but it's part of remembering, it's part of you know, passing it down through this oral tradition that they had. The last group of 14 follows from Jeconiah to Joseph. And there's some pretty interesting things that are happening here. Just like with Abraham and David, they were, there was a covenant made. There is a covenant made with this group of people as well. It was the end of the throne of David, and nobody sat on the throne after the deportation of Babylon. But God makes a promise to Zerubbabel. On that day, declares the Lord of hosts, I will take you, Zerubbabel, Son of Shealtiel, my servant, declares the Lord, and I will make you like a signet ring, for I have chosen you, declares the Lord of hosts. The signet ring was a really important thing. It kind of tied them back to this, this kingship. The thing is that the signet ring was kept on the right hand. And when we read about who Jesus is, it talks about Jesus being found on the right hand of God. So there's this promise made to this last group of people that even though they don't have that kingship anymore, that they've lost their throne, that there's still a promise, that there's still an importance to who they are. This was the end of the line. And as we read through this genealogy and we come to Joseph, we find that Joseph was the adoptive father of Jesus. And so the bloodline ends with him. The curse that we talked about in the line of Joseph ends also because Jesus was born without sin. The nature of sin was not in Christ because he was not born of a fleshly father. 
and claiming God as the Father supersedes the sin of Adam as well. Also, through proclaiming the adoption of Joseph, it gives hope to those who have no earthly claim to the salvation of the Old Covenant. And I think that's really important in the New Testament. The Old Testament were people that could say, I can trace myself back through this genealogy, and I've got a claim because God made a covenant with my grandfathers. But in the New Testament, he's saying there's an adoption process here that you don't have to be part of that genealogy, you don't have to be part of that ancestry, that I will adopt you in and you will be able to claim that exact same thing, that that promise can be yours as well. And also the completion of the the, uh, covenant to Abraham comes through Mary. This is the fifth woman that's mentioned in the genealogy. This covenant is not fulfilled through all the guys. The covenant is fulfilled through Mary, a woman. Her great-grandfather was not the firstborn. It was Nathan, the younger brother of Solomon. There's a complete inheritance. In 70 AD, Jerusalem was sacked by Titus. And although he was ordered to destroy the temple, Titus had planned to save it and dedicate it to a Roman god. The thing is that the temple was accidentally burned to the ground by soldiers who were trying to burn down the fortress. Uh, Jerusalem ceased being a Jewish state and it was ceded to the Romans. Now here's an interesting thing. When they destroyed the temple, they destroyed the genealogies. It halted any kind of historical claims of inheritance or property rights that the Jews had. The Jews could not claim their land because they couldn't prove it. They couldn't claim inheritance because they couldn't prove it. And everything was gone. Essentially, the Jews became foreigners in their own country. And because of their own law, they lost everything. And the fulfillment of the prophecy was made by Christ. There can never be another claim to the throne of David because you cannot trace families back through the line of David. So there cannot be another claim. The last thing I want to look at is not only does Christ claim to be the king, but there's also a claim to the priesthood. I found some really interesting stuff when I was looking through the Jewish idea of where does priesthood come from. According to Jewish custom, the firstborn was intended to serve as a priest and a minister of God. During the sin of the golden calf, the priesthood was transferred to the sons of Levi. Because when Moses came down and he saw all these people worshiping the golden calf, the only ones that weren't were the Levites. And so this idea of the firstborns being the priests was taken away and it was given to the family of Levi. Christ was the firstborn of God. Christ was sinless. And because he was born without sin, that priesthood is returned to him. He can claim the priesthood being the firstborn. And I find that really interesting that not only is he shown through the genealogy to be the king, but he's also shown through who he is and through the nature of God that he is also the priest, that he takes both offices on himself. So what is the challenge of the genealogy in the church? I think it reveals our past. It validates stories and events. It exposes the bad things in our family. And it's important to look at our past and see what has happened and where has pain been caused and what do we do to to fix that. And if we can't fix it, what do we do to open that door to those people to say we can be reconciled that, you know, we don't have to necessarily talk and be happy and buddies, but we don't have to be angry. We don't have to carry that around. Genealogy glorifies the good as well. You know, Jesus could say that he was the son of David. And we know that David was, was held very highly by God. You know, he was, he was sort of the pillar that everyone pointed at, like our father David. In the church, what is the good? What do we glorify in the church? Do we glorify our heart of serving? 
Do we talk about who we produce as a church, as ministers and missionaries and people in the community, businessmen, or just working in the community? Genealogy influences our future. It preserves our culture and our tradition and our legacy. It teaches us how to learn. It helps us to discover that why there were times of celebration. When we look in our past, there are things that happened that were really important. And why is that? And we can look into that. And why, was, why were there times of celebration? Why did we do the things we did? Genealogy illuminates the work of the Spirit, which is our claim to inheritance. Where is the Holy Spirit guiding us today? And how is that evident in our past? When I look at my genealogy, I can trace it in Canada. I could trace it in Russia and Germany. I have a colorful history. Denise and I went to Ireland for our honeymoon because there is an Irish component to my family. My great-grandfather was Irish, which is really strange because I'm a Mennonite. I come from Russia. I come from Germany. We can go look at Holland and the Netherlands, and that's where our family's from. And here's this Irish dude. And what's he doing in my family? And why is he important? And so I, we went to Ireland mostly because they speak English, and it's easy to get around. But you know what? That's part of my history. That's part of who I am. My question for you really is, who are you? When you look at your genealogy, when you look at where you are, who are you? What does that say about you? Where did you come from? Where are you going? What is the history ahead of you? And how does that influence the people around you? Who's the first recorded biblical genealogy? The very first genealogy that was recorded was the line of Cain, which I found really interesting because Cain was taken and split apart from the family. And he killed his brother, and God punished him and sent him away. And I think that says something to us that's really important, that there is a providence of God on us, that even though we don't come from that line, that we can't trace ourselves back to a Jewish history, that God takes care of us. When we look at that line of Cain, it talks about him and his sons and his sons' sons and the cities that they established and the type of trade that they got into and how they influenced the people around them. And yet Cain was split off of the line of Adam. And I find it really interesting that in that genealogy, regardless of what happened to that family, there was a providence that God had his hand on that family and he kept them going through the generations. You know, genealogies can be a little bit boring, but I thought if we looked at the people who were involved in these genealogies, there would be something that we didn't know. There would be something that we could learn about the nature of God. And I think that it really informs us of what the rest of Matthew is going to be. believe what we believe we believe. 